Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories from French history. For the past few episodes, we've been focusing on the Belle Epoque, France's golden age, which stretched from the 1880s through the First World War. It was a time of incredible upheaval and innovation, a time of terrific advances in art, music, literature, and more, a time which gave the world icons like Monet, Debussy, Marcel Proust, Sarah Bernhardt, and many more. The whole world was changing, and every day French people encountered something new and exotic, something different from everything they had known before. Up until now, we've mostly focused on the positive aspects of these changes. But it's easy, looking back at the Belle Epoque through the hazy nostalgia of today, to forget that not everyone welcomed these changes, not everyone benefited from these changes. A new, exotic world could be exciting, but it could also be frightening and disorienting. Starting from the French defeat at the hands of the Germans in 1870, and lasting really all the way up until the end of World War II, France was split between its traditional conservative institutions and its secular avant-garde. These two Frances were destined to clash, and at the turn of the century, they did so in such a spectacular way, France is still feeling the shockwaves even now. For the next few weeks, we're going to study what might be the most shocking, sensational, unpredictable, and controversial event in French history since the Revolution, the Dreyfus Affair. Somehow, I never managed to learn about the Dreyfus Affair at any point in my studies, and I figured this podcast was a good excuse to learn. Listeners, I could not believe what I read. This story is insane. How is it possible that no one has made the Dreyfus Affair into an English-language miniseries? If they have, please point it my way. Because what began as the trial of a French officer, Alfred Dreyfus, charged with treason, ballooned over the course of 12 years into the most extraordinary cultural earthquake, shaking the foundations of France from the city streets to the presidential palace. It's as though you combine Watergate with the trials of O.J. Simpson and the West Memphis Three. I originally intended to spend a single episode discussing the Dreyfus Affair, but it's the gift that keeps giving, and I can't do it justice in one go. So this series will be spread out over the course of the next six weeks, and I'll try to release a few episodes of reasonable length at a time. It's hard to write about the Dreyfus Affair without losing my cool, if you couldn't already tell. I won't even pretend as though I don't have opinions about it, because this is my personal podcast, not a Wikipedia article. The Dreyfus Affair is a stain on French history, and most of the people involved with it should have spent their lives in prison, feeling guilty about what they did. But it's also a really important story to hear, because this trial shaped French history for the next 50 years. Many historians claim the legacy of the Dreyfus Affair didn't really disappear until the wreckage of World War II, and some historians claim the legacy continues today. 
It's a story of treason, real or imagined, conspiracy, but not by the people you might think, racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and a society split in two, with each half completely unable to fathom the other. As the New Yorker put it, the Dreyfus Affair was the first indication that a new epoch of progress and cosmopolitan optimism would be met by a countervailing wave of hatred that deformed the next half century of European history. While this summary probably calls current events to mind for some listeners, I think the most relevant bit of recent history would actually be the trial of O.J. Simpson. As with O.J.'s trial, the trial of Alfred Dreyfus wasn't really about whether or not he was guilty. It was about who you were, watching at home, what world you lived in, what kind of vision you had of and for your country. But this story is even bigger, crazier, and more ridiculous than the O.J. Simpson trial. The Dreyfus Affair makes the O.J. trial look like an early season episode of Law & Order. So sit back and enjoy the first episode on one of the most defining moments in modern French history, the Dreyfus Affair. Late in the afternoon, on July 20th, 1894, the German military attaché to France, Lieutenant Colonel Maximilian von Schwarzkappen, received an unexpected visitor. The stranger was unremarkable, except for the gray Legion of Honor ribbon pinned to his civilian clothing. With high cheekbones, small, dark black eyes, and a trembling voice, the officer was fascinating, but a little off-putting. A straightforward task brought the stranger to the German embassy that day. With a wife and children starving at home, the stranger was desperate for money. The man now possessed only one thing of any value to the right bidder, and he thought the German embassy would be interested in what he had to offer. French military secrets. The stranger described his high connections, access to top-secret documents, and presence at important military maneuvers, while Colonel Schwarzkappen protested. Of course not. Who did the stranger think he was? A spy, Schwarzkappen said, shooing the stranger out of his office. As it turns out, that's exactly what Schwarzkappen was. Grabbing a pen and paper, Schwarzkappen drafted a note to himself about the strange meeting, describing a dangerous situation for myself with a French officer, asked to bring what he has for the Bureau of Information. Once he was pleased with the final copy, Schwarzkappen tore up his original draft into tiny pieces and tossed them in the garbage can. With that, he turned his thoughts to other matters, wrapping up the workday while the cleaning woman began her nightly shift. A few hours later, that cleaning woman would come in to tidy up, washing the windows, dusting the attaché's desk, and very quietly, very discreetly, emptying his trash can into her pocket. A little over a year after the strange meeting at the German embassy, Alfred Dreyfus dragged his weakened body over to the corner of his cell and began writing a letter to his wife. Most hours of the day, Dreyfus's world was 16 square feet of brick, stone, a tin roof, the shoddy clothes on his back, the meager rations pushed through the door, the armed guards watching him at all times, 
and the sounds of the ocean surrounding him, an ocean he could always hear but never be allowed to see. It had only taken a few weeks for the prisoner to begin breaking down. Dreyfus lived on a miserable spot of land appropriately named Devil's Island off the coast of French Guiana, a wretched outpost full of rocks, malaria, and 100-degree temperatures. The only other sign of human life on the island were the ruins of a former leper colony, 15 huts burned to the ground before Dreyfus came ashore. Only nine months earlier, Dreyfus had eaten his last family meal, a carefree Sunday supper with his wife, his in-laws, and his children. He could barely stand to remember those days now. That month, the shaking and the fainting spells began. Dreyfus couldn't read, his head was in so much pain. The guards wouldn't speak to him, wouldn't allow him a dip in the cool ocean to soothe the fire racking his body. Dreyfus wrote to his wife, My blood is burning my skin, the fever devouring me. When will this torture end? As the hot sun beat down on him and insects crawled over him, Dreyfus wrote, Every time that I break down during my long, solitary days and nights and would like to close my eyes in order to see, think, and suffer no more, I stiffen in a violent effort of my whole being and I shout to myself, You are not alone. You are a father. You must defend your honor and that of your wife and children. Over and over, letter after letter, Dreyfus would repeat the same refrain. Accused and then convicted of the most infamous crime a soldier can commit, I declared and I declare again that I did not write the letter attributed to me. I have never betrayed my honor. In the wake of its defeat in the War of 1870, France looked within itself for answers. How could the greatest nation on earth lose to its most despised enemy, Germany? How could France lose two of its precious territories, Alsace and Lorraine, and be forced to hand over millions of francs to the Germans? For a large portion of France, the answer lay with God. Surely France was being punished for turning away from Catholicism, and only a return to the church could save the nation. When the communards seized Paris away from the army at the end of the war, the National Assembly had approved a vote to pray for divine forgiveness. Long have we been oblivious of God, the official proclamation read. It behooves this truly French assembly to repair our lapse and show the world that France at last recognizes the only hand able to cure and save her. Lord, we are a guilty, woeful country. As traditional conservative French communities grew more insistent on their own faith, they began eyeing with suspicion those who didn't share their beliefs. If God was punishing France for its lack of faith, surely no one had less faith than that eternal outsider, the Jew. The Jewish community in France at the end of the 19th century was almost completely assimilated within mainstream society. The Jewish community in France at the end of the 19th century was almost completely assimilated within mainstream society. 
Grateful to Napoleon and the French Revolution for their religious freedom, Jewish rabbis preached assimilation at their synagogues and encouraged their followers to be the very best possible examples of French citizenship. The Jewish community responded by abandoning all but their most important traditions and working hard to ascend through the law, the banks, politics, industry, and the military. But that wasn't enough. The same citizens who accused Jewish people of standing out in society now accuse them of trying to blend in. Anti-Semitic newspapers printed horrific headlines in bold font, while mobs walked the streets periodically smashing windows, burning shops, and challenging Jewish people to duels. Jewishness had become associated with all that was evil in modern France, divorced from all that made up traditional French values. As one historian put it, a wanderer, the Jew was by nature without a homeland. A merchant, he was removed from the soil. By destiny or by curse, he was international. He loved money, not war. He was nurtured on intelligence, not instinct. He appealed to tolerance, not strength. As one journalist at the time wrote, everything seems impossible or frightfully difficult without the providential arrival of anti-Semitism, through which all things fall into place and are simplified. Not only the Jewish community, but the rich, the intellectual, the secular, and the international communities of France were becoming alien to the conservatives of France. It was as though there were real French citizens surrounded by intruders. At least the government seemed to think so. Following France's defeat in 1870, the government and the military grew obsessed with the idea of spies. France formed its first organized counterintelligence group with a name so bland no one would ever inquire about their work, the Section of Statistics. Inside the Section of Statistics, a small group of men grew insane with suspicion. Jean Sander, the director of the group, told his men to abandon their outside lives, to trust no one, to distrust friends, family, and even one another in order to serve the state. Within this circle of overheated imaginations, little sparrows were cultivated throughout the city to sniff out spies, and of course, to spy as much as possible in return. This dangerous world of national religious fanaticism and military paranoia was set to explode. One little sparrow was about to find a match. <clears throat> Madame Bastien, an illiterate 40-something French woman with gray hair and an unremarkable face, cleaned the offices of the German embassy. When she wasn't busy dusting shelves and wiping down tables, she was carefully saving every scrap of paper in her pocket and taking it home at the end of the night. Twice a month, Madame Bastien would hand over bags of scraps to the section of statistics, the remains of every imaginable type of paper, receipts, love letters, to-do lists, and occasionally, secret correspondence. One official at the German embassy was particularly useful to the section of statistics, a certain military attaché. It's almost hard to believe any high-ranking diplomatic official could be so careless, but Lieutenant Colonel Schwarzkappen tossed out top-secret documents without a second thought. Yeah, he'd shred the papers, but it wouldn't take long for the section of statistics to paste them together again. 
From inside Schwarzkappen's trash can, they'd find all kinds of juicy treats. Among other news, Schwarzkappen was conducting a long affair with another military attaché from Italy, Alessandro Panizardi, and they wrote a lot of naughty love letters when they weren't sharing their top-secret discoveries with one another. When Madame Bastian brought the scraps of Schwarzkappen's note to the section of statistics, she was greeted by Commandant Hubert Henry. Henry, third in command at the section of statistics, could be summed up in two words, blindly loyal. An enormous man, Henry was enormously devoted to his job. No matter what it took, Henry would obey his orders and fulfill his duties without ever stopping to think critically about what those might be. After assembling Schwarzkappen's note, Henry kept a closer eye on Schwarzkappen's trash can. If the attaché was, in fact, having dealings with a French military officer, surely the careless diplomat would toss more evidence in the trash. As it turned out, Henry only had to wait a few more weeks before the document, which would change the fate of not only Henry but the entire nation, made its way into Madame Bastian's pocket. On September 27, 1894, General Auguste Mercier, the French Minister of War, received a nasty shock. Jean Sander, from that strange, secretive little section of statistics, had told the Minister of War that he had in his possession a very important document intercepted that morning from the German embassy. Now the minister saw before him a one-page memo, which would be known forever after as the Bordereau, a term for a memo listing the documents contained within a folder. The Bordereau listed documents like the plans for top-secret military weapons, troop movements, foreign military posts, and an illustration from an instruction manual which had only recently been distributed among a small group of French officers. The Minister of War was furious. Not only was there a traitor in the French army, it was clearly an officer. The minister's desire to root out the traitor was two-sided. First, he wanted to protect his nation and uphold the honor of his army. Second, the minister was more than a little unpopular, and he needed a little public praise for capturing a villain. Unfortunately, for the next few weeks, the minister and the section of statistics failed to come up with any suspects. Who would be well-placed enough to have access to such wide-ranging information, which stretched across multiple branches of the army? In mid-October, one unimportant colonel mentioned offhandedly that he assumed it was probably a recently commissioned officer, since they completed a series of internships throughout different branches of the army before receiving their assignment. Well, that narrowed it down a bit. Only a few officers fit the criteria. And of that group, only one of them was unlucky enough to be Jewish. Alfred Dreyfus. From that moment, it was no longer a matter of finding a culprit who fit the evidence. It was a matter of finding evidence to convict the culprit. Tracking down a sample of Dreyfus's handwriting, Commandant Henry reached out to another officer with a reputation for handwriting analysis, the absurd Commandant Mercier du Petit de Clam. Even if you were able to forget such a name, you shouldn't because he's going to pop up throughout this story, wearing monocles, fake beards, wigs, and even sometimes a dress, causing chaos wherever he goes. 
Petit de Clam decided on the spot that Dreyfus's handwriting and the handwriting of the Bordereau were the same. The Minister of War wanted to be sure, so he called in two more handwriting experts, Alfred Gobert and Alphonse Bertillon. Alfred Gobert had bad news. The handwriting was pretty similar, but no more so than that of anyone who had learned to write cursive in a French school. That wasn't what the Minister of War wanted to hear at all. He had already made arrangements to arrest Dreyfus. The minister looked to Alphonse Bertillon for guidance. Alphonse Bertillon was the inventor of the mugshot, the first to introduce forensic anthropology into detective work. He was also, by the way, completely insane. By drawing up an absurd series of charts and graphs, Bertillon demonstrated that Dreyfus was definitely responsible for writing the Bordereau because his handwriting was different from that in the Bordereau. If that doesn't make sense to you, that's because it's Looney Tunes. But it's Looney Tunes the Minister of War wanted to hear, so he sent the police to the door of Alfred Dreyfus. After returning home from his Sunday supper, Dreyfus was summoned to appear the next morning in civilian clothes. Puzzled, but happy to obey an order, Dreyfus was immediately confused when he was shown into an empty room and told to copy out a document. Dreyfus didn't know it, but he was the star of a ridiculous pantomime constructed by Commandant Patty de Clam, who seemed to think he was an evil genius or maybe a musketeer. Petit de Clam's idea was that Dreyfus would copy a document confessing to his alleged crimes. If he grew nervous while copying the document, it would be a dead giveaway that he was guilty. If he didn't grow nervous while copying the document, it would be a dead giveaway that he was hiding something. Geniuses, all of them in the section of statistics. Alfred Dreyfus never stood a chance, and after this farce was over, he was arrested for treason. Sputtering, Dreyfus demanded to know why and what. I'm innocent. Not that it mattered. The Minister of War needed a traitor. Dreyfus was going on trial. For a little while, things looked hopeful. During the initial inquest, experts rolled their eyes at Bertillon's ridiculous handwriting theories, and everybody noticed the obvious fact that this arrest was based on some pretty flimsy evidence. An unsigned, intercepted memo, which might be written by Dreyfus, because he copied down a document when asked to do so, it was weak stuff. Luckily for the Minister of War and the section of statistics, or not so luckily for those who think they were responsible for it, News of Dreyfus's arrest leaked to the press. All of a sudden, the anti-Semitic newspapers of France went nuts. As far as the press was concerned, Dreyfus ought to be hanged the next day. It wasn't just Dreyfus who was guilty, it was all Jewish people everywhere in France. In every nasty affair, there are always Jews, wrote one newspaper. Every Jew betrays his employer, wrote another. Yet, some of the press, well, if it wasn't exactly on Dreyfus's side, it definitely wasn't on the side of the Minister of War either. Minister Mercier had enemies everywhere, and they hoped for any chance of kicking him out of office. What proof did Mercier have of Dreyfus's guilt? Meanwhile, a very confused German ambassador, completely in the dark about what his attaché had been up to, announced that the German embassy has never received any letters from Dreyfus. He has never had any direct or indirect relations with us. 
Nevertheless, the section of statistics was nervous. Now that Dreyfus was on the front page of every newspaper, their own reputations were staked to the outcome of his trial. As one leading newspaper wrote, If Dreyfus is acquitted, the minister goes under, that is beyond doubt. But if Dreyfus is convicted, Mercier takes on greatness and, profiting from the trial, passes for the savior of the country. As far as the section of statistics was concerned, the time for action was at hand. Commandant Hubert Henry returned to his files at the section of statistics, poring over all the carefully preserved shreds and scraps of the past few years. He looked for anything which might shore up the evidence against Dreyfus. At last, he found a letter from the German attaché Schwarzkappen to his Italian diplomatic and romantic partner Alessandro Panizardi, which read, "I would be back in eight days." Enclosed are the master plans of Nice, which that scoundrel D gave me for you. The section knew that D almost certainly did not stand for Dreyfus. No matter, into the file it went, and this document would prove extremely consequential in the future. But that was all Henry could find. It was time to take matters into his own hands. One night in November, a French police officer who frequently worked with the section of statistics took home a few letters sent by Schwarzkappen to Panizardi. Working alone, but almost certainly with the encouragement of Henry, the police officer forged the letters, adding incriminating sentences pointing to Dreyfus. The next morning, the clumsy forgeries were added to Dreyfus's file as well. From that moment. The case against Dreyfus was no longer an investigation; it was a conspiracy. The trial of Alfred Dreyfus caught the attention of the entire country. One by one, the agents of the section of statistics testified to Dreyfus's guilt, while Bertillon rambled on about his incomprehensible handwriting theories. Yet the trial also included the first handwriting expert, Alfred Gobet, who stubbornly refused to attribute the handwriting of the Bordereau to Dreyfus. Next were a series of character witnesses, all willing to vouch for Dreyfus himself. Just as had been the case during the inquest, the thin evidence raised everyone's eyebrows. Dreyfus himself was sure he would be acquitted. Yet Dreyfus's trusted lawyer, Edgar Demange, wasn't watching the courtroom drama. As one historian wrote, Demange was watching the agitation surrounding it, the comings and goings of Dupetit Duclam and Sandere, the long conversations he could see or imagine, and the barely concealed exchanges among the prosecution witnesses, the accusers, and the judges. At the end of the day, after final arguments wrapped up, the judges withdrew to their chambers. And the Dreyfus family gathered at the home of Alfred's brother Matthew to await news of Alfred's verdict. What they didn't know was that at that moment, Commandant Petit de Clam was delivering a top-secret envelope to the Council of Judges, with orders that it be opened straight away. Mercier, the Minister of War, had sent this envelope without informing anyone—not the President of France, not the Prime Minister. Certainly not Dreyfus or his lawyer. Inside the envelope, the judges found the section of statistics folder on Alfred Dreyfus, the scoundrel D note, and the forged letters. At 7:30 p.m., the judges handed down their verdict. Alfred Dreyfus was brought from his cell to the dark, empty courtroom by his lawyer. 
While Demange sobbed, a court clerk read the verdict by candlelight. Guilty by unanimous decree. For the next few weeks, Dreyfus received visits from his wife and the section of statistics. Commandant Dupetit de Clam tried and failed to obtain a confession from Dreyfus, spitting on his way out, If you are innocent, you are the greatest martyr of all time. Meanwhile, Dreyfus's wife, Lucy, visited as often as possible, sobbing to her husband and begging him not to kill himself for the sake of their children. After a humiliating public ceremony in which Dreyfus was formally degraded and dismissed from the army, there was nothing left to do but board the ship to his fate. On April 14, 1895, Dreyfus landed on Devil's Island. For the next four years, Dreyfus would suffer the illness, loneliness, and despair of the island. Little did he know, back in France, a brave soldier was about to make a shocking discovery. The true traitor of France. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. This week, I'll begin adding all kinds of material related to the Dreyfus Affair on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com, including pictures of the evidence used at trial and even a photograph of how Dreyfus's island jail cell looks today. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing this show on iTunes and mentioning The Land of Desire on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. Every time you mention The Land of Desire, you're my hero. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy part two of The Dreyfus Affair. <laughs>